You are now tuned in to the Believe Podcast Network. Do you believe? This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the Blog to Watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey everyone, Ariel Adams here with the Superlative Podcast. Today my guest is Marvin Siegel. He's currently the president of Your Network, which is an interesting online platform. And today we're going to chat about a little bit of his history and something that, that is, is a passion for both of us. Uh, Marv, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So we've known each other for a number of years now, and we each sort of had a serendipitous way of falling into the watch industry. You did so through a combination of family and business. And your father uh, started something very, very special. Uh, talk a little bit about what your father would be most well known for. Well, I would say my father was the ultimate influencer as he both founded, <laughs> to, you know, think about it in today's terms. Um, he started both the Franklin Mint and QVC. Okay, so for people that don't know what those things are, I, I of course remember the Franklin Mint with coins and QVC as a as a shopping platform. But again, let's just assume for for the moment that there are people who don't know these things because kids today sure. have no idea what these things are. So explain what these things were and why they were such a big deal and and how they fit into American commercialism. So the Franklin Mint started, uh, got thirty forty years ago, uh, and it was a concept of manufactured collectible coins uh and they made coins also for other countries which was pretty amazing think about the bureaucracy of having a mint in the united states making coins or currency for other countries wow and it was hugely successful he sold it he tends to retire a lot or did retire a lot before he passed away uh and then uh, uh the group that was the franklin mint uh, at the time, if you think back, again, 30-some-odd years ago, and what TV shopping looked like, it was very hokey, very corny, uh, and he felt he could do it better. And he met with the original show host, which we can get into in a minute, uh, that was on HSN at the time, or the Home Shopping Network, and uh, decided to make QVC. The concept of QVC, which is a 30-year-old-plus shopping platform is to do it better. Uh, in the early days of TV shopping, they never disclosed shipping and handling costs. There were a lot of things that my father really did not like, and he wanted it to be done with more class and style. And that's where the QVC came from. So we're talking about not the world's first, but probably the world's best for, for a number of years. Television shopping platform, a TV channel that you would you would turn to and there would be programming designed to sell a whole number of things. And one of the categories that became very popular, especially sort of in the 90s and early 2000s, was, was watches. Out of all the things they could sell, watches seemed to be such a, such a huge volume. I mean, there was whole channels seemingly or shows dedicated to it. Talk about how watches entered the space of, of TV shopping. You know, it's interesting, Ariel. It really entered only on one channel primarily. And that was a channel that's had a number of different names. It was known as uh, CVN, Value Vision, uh, Shop NBC, Shop HQ, which is its current name. 
and the primary uh, vendor there. And watches is a a brand. I'm not sure we put it in the category of some of the other watches that you and I own, but it's a brand known as Invicta. Uh, right. And in, and Invicta in the early days had a in my opinion, I mean, it was a semi-decent watch. And then I think, quite frankly, I mean, we're, you know, we're talking to each other. Uh, I think it kind of cheapened itself. And I make the, I make the comparison there, you know, pick any of the brands that you and I love, whether it's a Panerai, Omega, Breitling, et cetera. You would really not be too happy if you saw that same brand sitting in a, uh, at, at the checkout counter at Walgreens <laughs> for like $69. That would really upset you. And I think that's unfortunately what's happened to that brand. But but the primary thing was they developed a home. And there's a number of watch brands that are on uh, Shop HQ. And as much as QVC may dominate in consumer electronics or beauty, Shop HQ dominates in watches. And I was really into watches well before I ever got there. Um, but that's that's what they do really well there. Uh, I mean, I don't think any channel, and we can get into this, I, I think that the whole platform is over 30 years old and it's time for a shakeup. And there's many examples of that in today's world where large companies never pivoted in time. Uh, I want to talk about that a lot, but I want to go back in history a little bit because a lot of my childhood uh, has memories of watching various types of sales-dominated programming, whether it's uh, a network like QVC or an infomercial or something like that. And these had such a big effect on American culture that I want to spend a little bit more time talking about that, if only to discuss for people that have never lived through it how big of a deal it was. Because let, let's be honest, on paper, the idea of saying, hey, there's a TV channel and all it is is people trying to sell you things, you'd be like, there's no way that would succeed. Yet the reality was that people really liked being professionally sold things and would spend large amounts of time watching this. Um, when did it become obvious that people were completely okay sitting at home being sold to? You know what I mean? You know, it's it's funny the way you said that because when my father tried to get the first cable system to carry QVC, that was Comcast. And he right. met with Ralph, Ralph Roberts. There's actually a book. Um, I'm, I'm standing up for a second. You can't see that. But the book is called The Incredible Dream, if any of your listeners want to buy it. And there's a whole chapter dedicated to my father in that book. And when my father met with Ralph Roberts and discussed the concept of QVC, Ralph Roberts said, that's the stupidest thing I ever heard. And obviously Comcast made a lot of money off of QVC and yeah. it really is a format. I called it in the early days, background music for the home. In other words, you could, as a parent, you could leave it on in the background, maybe be semi-entertained, and there'd be nothing offensive on the TV. I used to say jokingly, there's no drugs, there's no sex, there's no violence, but that's of course on TV. God knows what happens all, all there, you know? <laughs> right, right, right. So you're saying that it proved to be very family friendly and for whatever reason, kind of cathartic to have on in the background. Now, there's something that I think is uniquely American about this combination of salesmanship and entertainment. I'm not saying it doesn't exist elsewhere, but in Europe, for example, you, you don't seem to have this culture where people are entertained by the sales process, yet there's a performance art to sales that I think became clear probably 
before the 20th century, probably even to the in, in the ni- in the 19th century, um, in America, where sales and entertainment have blended. And I think the circus, for example, it's again, it's not an American invention, but this idea that the whole point was get excited about going there and spending money. And this, you know, this reached sort of a, a zenith point, possibly in the, in the 1980s and 1990s. And so these cultural things like shopping networks made so much sense. And like you said, you had to actually experience it. What percentage of the population were watching these or what was sort of a nightly viewership? I just want people to get some idea of of the volume of people that would tune into stuff like this. It's millions, if not tens of millions of people are watching TV shopping at any one moment. Uh, The numbers are off the chart. QVC, I believe, does somewhere between $10,000 and $15,000 a minute in sales. I mean, that's an ungodly number in terms of the volume of product that can be moved on TV. Now, the answer is why. And you started to ask that question. In the beginning, and, and there was a movie made about it, which was the movie Joy with Jennifer Lawrence. That was about Joy Mangano and the Miracle Mop. And this was a, it's a great <laughs> oh, yeah. No, it's, it's really something for your listeners to watch because after they hear this program, they will understand it even better that when my father founded QVC, he felt the host should be the expert. They should know everything about everything. Well, it turned out when the Miracle Mop went on air, and I don't know about you, I'm not being sexist, um, a male show host was demonstrating the mop. Well, I don't know how to mop, and I would probably suspect you don't either. And it bombed. (laughs) She begged the president or general manager at the time to please go on air with the product. Well, that was like against everything my father had started with QVC. Well, they let her go on air and the rest is history. It sold out. And it proved that the, the, the qualification and the ability for to have the connected spokesperson demonstrate the product is what really works. I mean, imagine you going on air describing a high-end watch and giving a product tour and telling somebody why you'd want to own this watch, why the movement is so good, why the watch is so good, et cetera, people would be engaged with that. I believe the future is actually going to be more content-driven than it is in the current format it's in now. Uh, And that's why your networks is there. It's about more content than actually selling a product. It's, you know, you're, you're watching something, you're engaged with it, and by the way, what you see or what they're talking about, you might be able to buy. It's a little bit kind of a 180 on how the format is now. Uh, but still, that movie really kind of crystallized what happened back then and where the future went, where it's now the same dynamic, which has been that way for 30 years, of a host and a guest and this back and forth kind of scripted reality banter. Well, I want to I want to say a term that you may be familiar with. It's called conversation commerce. Are you familiar with that term? Absolutely. So that's becoming another hot issue today because, as you said, you know, a lot of websites and e-commerce is set up kind of like an ATM machine. It's sort of a unidirectional relationship between human being and interface. Whereas we found a long time ago, people prefer to do transactions during conversations. Mm-hmm. And what we had on QVC was, yes, it was sort of one directional, but in a sense it wasn't because somebody who was a real expert in this product or at least had serious enthusiasm about it, probably a creator or, or some type of an executive, 
would have this conversation, a very down-to-earth conversation. Of course, it was scripted, but it was very well done with the audience. And the audience could respond by picking up a phone and buying it. That was their way of having a conversation. It was, I'm talking to you, and if I like it, there's something I can do about it. The internet turned you know, the conversation commerce, basically trying to make everything automated like you're doing business with an ATM machine. And what we've found, especially through people like myself and sort of the influencer generation, is human beings really prefer conversational commerce, right? Ab- absolutely. And you are really reinforcing what is now happening. You, you, there are a number of people like yourself that people are engaged with. I mean, you have a huge, huge following because people trust you, they like the content, and they they want to hear what you have to say. I mean, it's relationship marketing, it, it, and you are demonstrating it better than anybody. And this is where I believe the future is going to be. But again, if you go back in time, I mean, just think about the craziness of the fact that for, for those that remember Sears, Sears really was the first direct-to-consumer company with the catalog. But right. what happened or what didn't happen was they didn't pivot in time with the Internet. They didn't adjust. And literally, this monster company, which, by the way, my father would not take QVC public until he had a deal with Craftsman Tools because he felt they were so good and they had such a great reputation. They but were. Cra- they were. They were the best. But look at it now. Craftsman's just like oh. a, a line sold in a regular hardware store. I mean, it's a sin. What happened? You you want to know what my assessment is? And this is what it is. I believe that Sears hated computers. It's not just the internet. It started before that with their inventory systems. That entire company seemed to just hate the computer in general. Well, you know, it's funny you say that because a lot of what is the DNA of QVC came out of my father's experience of shopping at Sears. He would hate when he went into Sears to buy something that was sitting there on display. And then when somebody came over and went to go find it, they went, oh, I'm sorry, it's out of stock. That drove him yeah, nuts. They, they never had any idea where anything was. It was like up to these human beings. It was the most unsophisticated. I remember going to a Sears store here in Los Angeles prior to their closing. I, I had to go in there because there was this um, craftsman toolcase I bought. And for some reason, I had to go there. And it was like a skeleton of what it used to be. And we were doing this. Uh, it was. Just, I remember this moment. It was hilarious. I was, I was you know, buying it with my, my card. And this guy who's about my age, and he's using this like really old computer. And I'm like, I, I was just sort of like making fun of it. I was like, how long has that been there? And he's looked at it. He's like, I've been here for 30 years and we've been using the exact same like checkout <laughs> terminal ever since. And I'm just like, and I'm looking around like, no wonder this place is a dinosaur. Like they just refuse to like ever make it a point to say, do we have this in stock? Like they refuse to ever answer that question. Right. And then the, the next piece of it, and if you think about this next thing I'm going to say to you is again, those two things are what make up QVC. The product's always in stock before it goes on air. And what also drove my father nuts was when you bought an item and then two days later it went on sale. So QVC's DNA, if you think about it, is the product starts at a low price and eventually goes up in price. So it, he that was built into what was in QVC's DNA in its script. And that's what it still is today. Okay, so let's back up here. And talk about price, because pricing is a very key part of an effective marketing strategy. And there used to be a little bit more of an actual organized strategy around it. Today, 
consumers simply do not trust retail prices like in any way. Some people will spend above retail, which is sad. More people will only want to spend below retail. Like, are we ever going to get back to retail prices meaning anything? Or is retail price and the finagling of it part of a core strategy of American consumerism? I, I think no matter how much money you have or how little money you have, everybody wants a bargain. I have a friend of mine who's a personal injury attorney, and he recently bought a, uh, a Bentley. And he okay. shopped around for the Bentley and saved $40,000, which is insane, that amount of money. That's how expensive the car is. But he wanted a bargain. So no matter how much money you have, everybody, I think, in today's world wants a bargain. I don't. I think it's happening a little bit in cars now because there's a shortage in cars and you don't hear really that much about rebates anymore. Uh, but they basically try when you watch a car commercial, it's got the incentive built in, in, in the promotion and there's not much finagling of the price, uh, from what you see in a uh, commercial nowadays. Uh, I, you know, it, it is a weird mentality. People, I think with the internet, Always go online, as you're saying. They look for other prices. They see if there's any other bargains, any other coupons. I mean, you you look at Ebates, you look at Rakuten. Those are things that people live by in today's world. Well, I, I think it's actually a, an important thing because if you go back to QVC, the whole concept was designed to get someone to make a transaction right now. And in sales, you know, and again, this might be boring to people that are not in sales, but, you know, it, it's sort of this, this nerdy world of sales where there's just a lot of psychology and important processes. And the idea is that you don't want to just get someone motivated to buy. You want them to do that transaction now, because if you lose that transaction when it's hot, there's a very small chance that they'll, they'll make the purchase later. They'll have to be reheated, so to say. And so what I have found is that people get excited about buying something up until the point where they actually go to buy it. And then they see all this price fluctuation and that stops them. So I see a lot of purchases that are not happening that would have otherwise happened if there seems to be a little bit more price consistency. You see what I'm saying? Absolutely. I 100% agree with you. And that's a problem. I mean, as you said, there is very little trust, you know, whether it's a car dealership, uh, whether it's a any any retailer anywhere, everybody expects some movement on the price you know, if they buy now, you know, before they leave, the, before they walk out. I mean, I started, Jesus, I'm trying to think about it. When I was a couple of years out of high school, believe it or not, I was selling cars. Uh, and, um, you know, if somebody left the showroom, if you were working with a customer and they left the showroom, there was a really high probability you'd never see that customer again. You yeah. know, you wanted, you wanted to try to get them in a car, test drive it, and then close that deal. I mean, that was very important. Now, of course, now, we're in a much more laid back and now you barely, you know, up until recently, you couldn't even be face to face with somebody. I mean, I, in some ways, I think it's made, you know, car buying and car service rather uh, painless. I mean, I, I had, my lease was up on my car. I got a new car. I mean, they literally delivered it to me. You signed everything electronically online. And when I need service, you just go back there, you drop it off and, you know, you walk away from the car and they take it and they deliver it back to you. I mean, it's a, it's gotten in some ways because of COVID. Uh, it's it's a uh, it's it's interesting how many companies have pivoted in today's world. And do you think that's a trend that's going to continue? Do you think you know where do you see that in a couple of years? Assuming the world's going to open up again, this sort of focus on on clienteling uh, and, and convenience and things like that. Like where where is that going to continue going? In your opinion? In my opinion, I think 
we just fast forwarded about 10 years. Uh, my mother-in-law, who is not very tech savvy, is now streaming everything, uh, is on the internet a lot more than she ever would have been. And I don't know that people are going to go back to the way it was. I mean, when you see major motion picture production companies releasing simultaneously to the internet and the movie theater, I've gotten really comfortable watching stuff at home. I don't know that I want to have somebody kicking my seat behind me again. Uh, you know, now I live in New York. I live in Manhattan. Uh, I will go to a Broadway show sometime in the future, but not for a while. And, you know, we'll see what happens with this latest variant of the COVID virus and how much people really go back to a comedy club or a Broadway show. But I think it's going to take a lot of time before people ever go back to what was normal. And I don't think it's ever going to go back to that. I think it'll be this new normal. Uh, for how people interact with other people and where they go and what they do. I think retail in, and retail and malls, I, I think, are done. I, I agree with you. And so I, I'm sort of somewhere in the middle here because I believe very, very strongly in the importance of convenience for the consumer experience. I think a lot of consumerism is overly inconvenient for no good reason, especially in the luxury industry. Um, they're starting to change, but there used to be this idea of you wanna buy a product, you have to come to our street, into our home, and, and enjoy our hospitality and talk to us as long as we wanna talk to you. And if we think everything is cool, we'll sell you the watch uh, you know, and, and all that. And some people are into that, but other people find that to be burdensome. And you know, it's, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, and then at the same time, um, I think that this sort of automated approach to buying watches in, on, these, on e-commerce, it, it wasn't really working well enough because there was no steam to push the sale. And so what I really hope is that this generation of, of great salesmanship that we've lost is, will rebound because of all these sales professionals coming back or, or being made to do some type of remote conversation. That, that, that major companies, you know, Amazon, for example, is lucky, but most companies shouldn't get away with being able to do most of their business with, with just catalogs. There needs to be more human beings to speak to. I mean, I'll, think about all these companies that people get so upset that you can never reach a customer service person. I mean, you know, Google, for example, like everybody on the planet uses Google every single day. No one even knows how to have a human conversation at Google. I think that's something that needs to change. I agree. I'm making notes as you're talking. So, Let's touch on Amazon for a second. I don't believe Amazon is where you go to shop. I believe Amazon is a place you go to buy something. And my comparison to that is, I'm going to date myself a little bit, similar to Radio Shack. I don't. I would only go to Radio Shack to buy a cable or a weird battery. I never stayed and looked and said, oh, look at all the nice stuff here. And I basically, my opinion is I only use Amazon. I go, oh, I need X. I need this thing. I go on to Amazon, I buy it, I check out, and I'm gone. I don't look around and see, hey, what's new on Amazon today? Uh, I just don't think that happens in today's world. Then you touch on the luxury retailer. Uh, a couple months ago for my wife's birthday, she wanted something from Chanel. So I went online to go get this thing that she wanted, and it actually said on the website I had to call them. I was like, this is bizarre. <laughs> but I, 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 it was weird. So I, I felt like I'm going back in time. So I, I called them and the person actually said I had to come in and give them the credit card. I said, you're out of your mind. I said, this was right in the middle of the whole COVID. I was like, it was literally three, four months ago. Um, I said, I'm not doing that. I said, get a manager. I said, that's insane. 
And I, that, I finally, I had to beg them to take the order on the phone and ship it to our home. Was it a I mean, fraud thing or were you just, are you just being a big spender again? No, no, no. I was buying, uh, and I, I mean, relatively not a terribly expensive item, a, a few hundred dollars from Chanel, a, a little pendant. And uh, they just, it was how they dealt, how they did things. They, they, it's an example of people not kind of pivoting properly, especially in the middle of a, of a pandemic, what was going on. But you see this over and over again. Another classic example, I may or may not have had this discussion with you in the past, because you and I have shared some meals together. I mean, there, and you can look up the story. There was a engineer at Kodak, and you think about Kodak and, and you know, dominated the film business. Right. That made and that engineered and made a digital camera, went up to the executive committee. You can look up the story and presented it. And the executive committee turned him down and said, oh, that's never going to work. Think about what would have happened to Kodak. They wouldn't have been bankrupt. They would have owned the chip that was in every camera. And they did not pivot. They didn't recognize the future. And there's example after example of large companies not understanding you know, what the future is going to be. I mean, you even look about what we're doing right now. We're having a podcast. I mean, TV shopping actually started on radio. And in some ways, you think of how big the podcasting industry now is, that we're going back to that. People enjoy podcasts. It's it's a great form of entertainment. And, and most people, again, those that even follow TV shopping may be shocked to know that TV shopping started on a radio show by accident. Uh, I mean, so, you know, there, there's an amazing history with what, radio. What year was this? What year was this and what was being sold? I'm just curious. No, no. Okay, real quick story. 1977, there was a gentleman, Bud Paxton, who owned a radio station, who was the founder of HSN, evidently. I mean, the way it worked out. And what happened was a advertiser couldn't pay their bill and said to the radio station, I can't pay my bill right now, but I have a couple hundred avocado green electric can openers I'm going to give you. And the guy's like, what the F am I going to do with these can openers? Because I don't know, <laughs> but you know, I'm going to give them to you to try to work my bill down. So a, a talk show host doing, doing a show on this radio station in between the interviews started to talk about the can opener. Well, all couple hundred can openers sold out that day. Next thing you know, the guy calls back up from the radio station and says, can I get more can openers? And he, when he saw how well it was doing, he said, gee, maybe I should buy some TV time. And this would probably do even better if somebody could see the can opener. That was the start of HSN. So let's talk about watches uh, and, and sure. this whole, whole context. You know, you said yourself you, you were a watch person. Uh, your father, Joseph, was he also a watch person? Uh, he, not, not as much as I was. And I... My whole thing is I love a watch. I, I don't like a designer that makes a watch. I like a watch company that makes a watch, and I like the DNA of that watch company as an example. I mean, my favorite watches are like Panerai, Breitling, and Omega, and not just any one of those. I mean, I, I have a reason that I own each one of them, um, and we can get into it. I mean, my wife bought me the Moon Watch, which I friggin' love. Uh, I mean, I, I just, the, the DNA of that watch and the fact that on the back of the watch, you know, which is so cool. And most people don't realize until you're really into it, that the watch facts are, can be as important as the front. 
And they yep. have a watch that on the back of the watch, it says flight qualified by NASA for all manned space missions. That's pretty cool. I mean, that's just like, you know, that's like your drop the mic moment. Um, but for and, you, it's, it's a story that sells the watch. Of course, you have to like how it looks. But what makes you choose one watch over another is this connection to some type of achieve, achievement that you personally admire. Yeah. And, and the same thing with Breitling, which has a connection to aviation. I have one of the original uh, B1 Breitlings where the case back, and it's funny, I guess there's a thing with me in case backs, where the case back is actually, a, it resembles a jet engine. You probably know which model I'm talking about. Right. Um, I love that watch because it's very cool. Like somebody compliments me on the watch. I go, yeah, you like this? I take it off my shoulder. like, oh my God, that's awesome. You know, and then somebody you interviewed, I think, didn't you interview Craig Heister a while ago? Yes. Okay. I, I, I admire the guy and I actually own one of the Berlin watch walls that he designed. I think that's the, one of the coolest things. The I like that, that one as well. I have one of yeah. those. Those are cool. Yeah. I mean, the fact that in the crown of the watch are pieces of the Berlin wall is just nuts. And I'm glad, see, you and I have very similar tastes. We, we appreciate something that has a story to it. Uh, but more and, so, we have, we have confidence to wear expressive art pieces. A lot of people, for whatever reason, can't get past wearing a tool watch. Like if it looks flashy or like it's trying to tell a message or talk about your taste or your sense of humor, it's like it's too much for them. Like you just see what I'm saying? There's like a certain jump you have to make as a watch wearer to go from I'm wearing something handsome and functional to I'm wearing something that is ex extension of me. Like you have to be more of a confident, outspoken person. Well, what is it? I mean, as a guy, there's only a couple things you can really wear. You can wear a watch, maybe a bracelet. I mean, there's not too much, and maybe a wedding band, depending on your, your status. Well, I they, mean, say, they not, say the shoes, they say the, the belt sometimes or the wallet. It's not that much, though. No, it really isn't. So a watch can be a statement piece for some people. Uh, and, and the same token, and I, I never thought I was going to like it, I will admit, I also have an Apple Watch. Uh, I just like it when I'm, when I'm in the office and I'm away from my phone, I can see that my phone's ringing or somebody's trying to get a hold of me. And I like that too. But normally when I go to a business meeting, I'm wearing a traditional watch. I love what a traditional watch is all about. And, you know, whether, and, I, and it's funny, to the other extreme of the Apple Watch, the Panerai that I own is a classic two-hand, uh, I have to wind it every day, straight mechanical watch. And I love the simplicity of that watch. I think it's that's nice, it's nice looking. It's nice looking. Thank you. But I mean, it's, but it's the extreme of, you know, not even having a second hand. It's just a two hand straight mechanical watch. When I put it on, I got to wind it. I'm connected to it. I know what's going on. You want to hear an interesting story about that watch? Go ahead. So the last podcast I did was with someone who's a Panerai um, history expert. And so I have all this Panerai information fresh on the mind, but those dials um, were actually too bright <laughs> for their purposes, meaning those big sandwich dials that we love today. Yeah. They, were, they were worn by these, they called them frogmen, which were the, these Italian sort of special forces. It was a very stealthy thing. And the watches would actually glow so bright that they had to cover them with cloth or some type of a hood because it actually ruined the stealth. Yeah, I mean, it's, again, all these watches that you and I are talking about, that you and I like, have stories to them. And, you know, it's, I got a great story uh, for, for the moon watch. So I, my guy that regularly cuts my hair is not in, I, I didn't realize it. 
So I'm getting my hair cut and I'm wearing the Omega uh, Speedmaster Moonwatch. Okay. And he, he made a comment about the watch. And I go, yes, this is one of my favorite watches. No, it was worn on the Apollo mission. And this guy says, he goes, well, you know, that was that never really happened. And I'm like, excuse <laughs> me? Wait a minute. Wait, this gets better. This is honestly, this is a great story. So I go, what do you mean it never happened? He goes, that was all fake. And I go, no, it wasn't. And he goes, how do you know? You're going to love this is like a drop the mic moment. I said, well, I'm a commercial pilot and I flew with two guys that flew the Apollo mission. And the guy just shut up at that point and didn't say anything else. <laughs> that, that's all it took, right? Yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, come on, dude. I flew with a guy. And by the way, the best quote I ever heard, Ariel. So, you know, when you're getting ready for takeoff and you're at the, you know, you're, you've seen that line at JFK, you're waiting to take off. You're having a little conversation up front. So one of the guys that flew in Apollo, I said to him, I go, I got to ask you a question. I go, you know, it's, they're counting down from 10 seconds. What's going through your mind? And this is the best quote I ever heard. He goes, what's going through, what went through my mind at that moment, he said, was my ass is strapped to the lowest bidder of a government contract. <laughs> I mean, I had a, I had a conversation with um, Scott Kelly of the, of the Scott and, and Mark Kelly, the brothers. I think right. he's, he's a politician in Arizona now, but he had just come back from being in space, like the longest he set some record. And I, I met up with him at a Breitling event. He's is, was, I don't know politically if he can be still, he was an ambassador and, you know, I was like, what do you ask someone who's just been in space for a long time? And I was really curious. It was like, you know, I was about comfort and, you know, you're there a long time. And I was like, you know, I was asking about things like going to the bathroom and sleeping. And he had the least flattering things to say about the bathroom and sleeping experience. He said, you felt kind of gross and awful all the time. You know, the heroism and what some of these people do in, in the name of sort of advancement and human achievement is put up with some horrible experiences. Yeah, once in a while when you look out the window and you see the view of Earth, it's really cool and you get to think to yourself how amazing what you're doing is. But on a, like a day-to-day a -day basis, these are very, very challenging uh, things. And these are achievements that we really, really should be celebrating. And, and like you said, uh, watches tend to be directly connected because all these people that do all this crazy stuff, they're also like, insanely into watches just like we are like the like hardcore yeah and and it's there's something to a cool watch that has a story and again this is for me it's not for everybody i love a watch made by a watch company not a designer making watches and you know what i'm talking about ariel i mean i love true watch companies that make a great timepiece uh that have a story and, I have you know, a soft spot for designers. I like the, you know, I just wrote okay. about the Chanel, Chanel men's watch. But look, you're not wrong. I just, I'm, a, I'm I also like the sort of art, artistic flair thing and the fashion thing. But that's just my own personal taste. And that's that's why there's chocolate and vanilla. It's okay. It's not a problem. I mean, yeah. I just, you know, but I, I love, you know, the, and I, I actually owned one of the original Breitling emergencies. You know, which oh, of course you yeah, know. yeah. So cool. I actually. I actually owned it when it was, you couldn't buy it in the US, you could only buy it in Europe, and you had to be a pilot to own it. Because, oh, really? of, you know, you, yeah, you, and the, the very early ones, yeah, you, you could not, it, because you could trigger, you know, like a, a search for you if you uh, just screwed around with it. They make you, they make you pay. That's what people don't understand that if, if, if you have a real emergency situation and you give Breitling the rights to talk about it, they, in many instances, will pay for your rescue. But if it's an accident or a mistake or something like that, you got to pay crazy amounts of money. Great. And 
if it was a real situation, they will refurbish and restore the watch afterwards for free. Um, well, that's that's good. There's that. Yeah, but, but I had that watch for years until it needed a major overhaul, and you don't even want to know how much that cost. And then I traded and I bought another one. Um, but uh, but no, I mean, I, again, I love watches with a story. I mean, it's just a really I, it, to me, it's a really really great thing, and I. You know, as as we talked about the one brand over at Shop HQ right now, I think what's unfortunate is when a brand for other reasons ends up cheapening its brand. I mean, that's people. I mean, there are there's so much effort that goes into maintaining the brand of a watch or anything. And I mean, again, whether it's a car company or a watch company or, you know, you mentioned Chanel, Louis Vuitton, you name all these brands. You don't want to see these brands cheapen. They fight really hard to make sure their values always stay where they're supposed to be. I mean, I just happened to notice because when I was preparing for our podcast today, I mean, I looked up and, you know, not that this is a reason to buy it, but, you know, the Moonwatch has actually gone up in value. Uh, my B1 is, you know, priceless because it's not made anymore with that case back. Um, and that makes you feel good. Like you made a good purchase. Uh, you know, that's, that's kind of a really, really neat thing to, uh, to be able to do. It's something different than just any old watch. Now, again, there's a purpose for the other watches. I mean, whether it's a Casio G-Shock or anything else that people wear, that's fine because that may serve a purpose for them. Have you visited the gift store for watch lovers? It's called the Blog to Watch Store, and we carry art, apparel, and accessories for today's timepiece enthusiasts. Buy your wristwatches elsewhere and celebrate the watch collecting hobby with high quality original products at the Blog to Watch store. Right now, the Blog to Watch store features a line of t-shirts inspired by iconic timepieces and designed by the collecting experts at the Blog to Watch. Made from 100% premium cotton, our soft fitted t-shirts are stylish, fun, and models like our iconic diver dial even have a glow in the dark face. The Blog to Watch store carries bespoke yet affordable products, which the Blog to Watch editorial team wanted for themselves as the first customers. Visit the website to see what is available right now, and we ship internationally with new products coming all the time. Check it out by logging on to store.ablogtowatch.com. That's store.ablogtowatch.com. Let's talk about something that I find interesting about American consumerism, going back to the, you know, the the TV shopping days and, and even before that, there are collectors and things that are collectible that go up in value. And then there are marketers that like to anticipate collectibles and say things something is collectible. Now, you and I know, especially in the 90s, if something said it was for collectors and collectible, it probably was never going to be worth very much because that's not how collectible things get collectible. Usually they're collectible because they're rare and not promoted as being something that's collectible. They're usually like flukes and mistakes and things like that. So you must have become a very good collector because you know all the strategies that marketers use to try to create artificial collectability, right? Yeah, I mean, look, the Franklin Mint did that better than anybody. I mean, those giant two-page ads they had in the, in the papers uh, talked about limited availability. Well, it was only limited to who bought it in a certain period of time. I mean, whether 10 people bought it or 10,000 people bought it, that it didn't matter. You know, it was cut off by time, not by quantity. So was it really collectible? Eh, it was a manufactured collectible. Um, right. I, I have 
represented true historic coin companies in my career that, you know, are these coins that are found, you know, like the, the widow's mite coin found in an archaeological dig in the Dead Seas, you know, that kind of stuff. Or this individual uh, showed me one of his own personal collection coins. And if you ever look at the back of a coin, there's something called Flying Liberty. It's Lady Liberty with the wings. And this guy says to me, there's only three of these in the world. Ben Franklin had three of them made in gold, and one of them was given to the Queen of England. Here's the other one. We don't know where the third is. That's an amazing story. Yeah. So, um, you know, stuff like that I find interesting. And just like watches, which we were talking about with the Berlin Wall watch, that, um, you know, coins tell history, you know, different times, different coins, et cetera. And I love that stuff. But it basically, you know, as you said, if something tells you it's collectible or something, somebody tells you it's going up in value, it's not. And there's a bit of an epidemic of that in the watch world right now, where there are a lot of people working very, very hard at creating artificial collectability. And I think the, my problem with it is that consumers ultimately suffer because what it's basically doing is making people buy the same watches they would otherwise buy, but for a much higher price. And that just doesn't sit well with me as a consumer, you know? I 100% agree with you. You should buy something because you like it, not because it's going to go up in value. And by the way, that happens everywhere. I mean, I, I'm, I don't know if you know, in my one of my past lives, I'm past president of the building industry. And there are people, you know, going back to the 90s that were buying houses with 10% down. They had high incomes and there was like, well, the house is going to go up in value. Well, you know what? It didn't go up in value and they had a problem. And, and then 2007 happened. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, I mean, you should buy what you should buy, what you want, whatever you can afford, because you like it. I mean, you, you know, the concept of you're going to constantly be trading or, you know, being able to sell something. That's the wrong reason to buy it. Buy it because you like it. That should be the fundamental reason. Now, let's go back and talk about the 1990s and also the early 2000s. I remember when I was living in San Francisco prior to starting a blog to watch. I would come home from law school at the time and make myself some dinner and sit down and turn on the TV. And for whatever purpose, I had Shop NBC on. And lo and behold, they were selling watches. And they were not often watches that I wanted to buy. I had already gone through you know, enough watches to know what I liked and had a little bit more elevated tastes. But I was still almost magnetically drawn to seeing these men and women talk about watches and selling them. Talk a little bit about that that time of of the late '90s and early early 2000s, and 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 watches specifically on on TV shopping. Well, look, I think just like the performers that are in Vegas that you don't see anyplace else, there are watch brands that you see in TV shopping that you typically don't see anyplace else. It's not that they are good or bad brands; they're probably not brands, as you said, that you and I would actually own. Um, but for a lot of people, they have style, they have a flair to them. Um, Invicta, you know, got known for making these large oversized watches. We made a joke that you could, you know, put your coffee cup on top of one of the faces of an Invicta watch and it would stay there. You know, I mean, they got that big at at a particular time up to like 60 something millimeters. Um, but there are brands that exist in TV shopping that you will not see any place else. And that doesn't make them bad. Um, it just 
they exist there. And they're fairly good values for people that want that type of watch. It's okay. Um, it's, look, if you think about the, this is who I imagine, at least for the last 15 years who watch these types of television programming, probably a little bit older, probably outside of a major metropolitan area, uh, mostly American, um, and who have, you know, what we might call Midwest taste. It's not that they have bad taste, but they haven't been exposed to enough international things to know, like, what's hot in Europe and the big, you know, economic centers around the world and things like that. So it's not that they don't have the capacity of great consumers. They just haven't really been exposed to luxury watches. And for them, this is these are the best watches maybe they've heard about. And, and, and they're buying them because they would be into bigger stuff. But the, the real luxury watch brands just aren't ever reaching them. They're not spending enough money to, to ever advertise to them because they're a little bit deeper than New York City. And I think that's, that's how I would categorize it. it am, I, am I wrong? You're a little bit wrong. Okay, okay please so, correct no, me. So, that, that was just my guess. That was my guess. No, 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 no. It's, there, it, there's a stereotype of the demographic, and then there are amazing things. So in the, the, the era you're talking about, one of the biggest zip codes that bought from QVC was 90210. Okay, you know, so not, Beverly not what, Hills. Yeah, not what you would have thought. And there are certain categories that do really, really well. Uh, consumer electronics. If you think about trying to – now, may, maybe it's gotten a little better at retail, but you know, for the most part, the guy waiting on you trying to sell you a computer just got transferred over from uh, the vacuum cleaning section, you know, last week and doesn't know anything about uh, a, a computer where right. you, you have an expert from Dell computer telling you about that Dell computer. And you will see, you know, going back in time, you would see, you know, two, $3,000 computers being scarfed up at the rate of, and I, I know in one case they did like $17 million in one day of computers. Wow. So, you know, that's not some Midwestern, housewife sitting at home on a couch with a you know bucket of bonbons or something. I mean, it's, it's, it's a fairly educated consumer that knows what they want. They know the brands and the brands, by the way, the name brands really do well. That's something called a new name generator. That those are, those brands will bring in customers that never bought from the shopping channel before. So there's oh, something. So they, they mix in unknown brands with name brands because it helps increase authority and credibility with more consumers. Yes. And just like I said before, the example of Las Vegas, there are brands that only exist in the TV shopping world. Uh, and they're good brands. They're, they're matter of fact, very, very good brands. They just don't have to pay for advertising. So therefore, the prices are really, really good. That's the flip side of the whole TV shopping model. I mean, that is their advertising. I mean, they're, it's, it's selling for a great price. You're getting a great value in many, many cases. Uh, and it, it works again, everybody's got, you know, if you want to go directly to the Apple store, you can, if you want to buy an, a brand new Apple M1 MacBook pro from QVC, you can do that too. And, and there's a, there's value in both locations. If you do that, I'm going to ask you about infomercials, which is sort of the, the long form of this. Are those still made? Cause I, I, I don't even know anymore, but like those used to be a big thing, but there's a lot of production that goes in them. Are those still made? So think back in time, it, you know, and I'm, I'm going to date myself. Uh, you know, there was a period of time when if you put on your TV in the middle of the night, you would see color bars. Remember that? Oh, yeah. Okay. 
Well, there's no color bars anymore. There's no free airtime that's just sitting there unused. That's where the infomercial market kind of came from. Um, so the production is very, very expensive. The product I was on air with uh, had an infomercial, and the budget for production was literally $500,000, and we had those okay. celebrities. Um, so, um, But infomercials in today's world, in my opinion, are sort of dead because you can do the same thing much more targeted with an influencer um, on YouTube, on Facebook. I mean, on Facebook, for a few hundred dollars, I can drill in to exactly a person that searched a watch by a brand name, uh, that likes jewelry, whatever the case is. I know exactly what their key search words are, and I can therefore almost hand deliver the information to them versus an infomercial, which is buying time on TV and it's hitting, you know, it's, it may not be hitting the whole country, but you're hitting weird markets, you know, and that problem with, you know, you don't have three networks anymore. You have hundreds of channels. So it's very hard to figure out where to buy your time. I, I think infomercials kind of like retail. I'm not saying TV shopping is going away. Uh, but I think that, you know, there needs to be a big pivot. And I'm going to, I'm not just saying this because we're talking on the phone because you and I have had conversations in the past that influencers really hold the key to great content that you can buy what they're talking about. And it could be even good. Uh, here's what I'm thinking. You came from a past where this was a really, really big deal. And this made a lot of sense. And a lot of people made a lot of money. And you just want this to be a big deal again, but pivoted in a modern way. So you're looking for a way of, of reigniting this flame of this very amazing and very successful sales culture, but in modern form. No one's quite sure what that is. We know the old way doesn't work, but it's like you're looking to replicate a lot of what you liked there that worked really well in, in today's sort of context. So we have on, on your network, we have a influencer, infomercial spokesperson. His name is Bo Riles. Bo Riles does travel videos. Okay. In his travel video of Chicago, you'll see him use a mission gator, which is that cooling neck gator uh, when it's hot out. He'll okay. use that when he's walking around the city. And when he checks into his hotel room, he plugs in a sharper image socket shelf, which is this little thing that fits over your electrical outlet. And it has a shelf to put your phone or your iPad on and USB outlets on the top of it. Okay, he doesn't talk about them. He just uses them. And then below yeah. the video... Product placement, a, product placement, right, right? Exactly. And below it, there's a button where you can click and buy those products. That, to me, is the future. Uh, you, you know, I want to learn about traveling in Chicago, where the great places go. Oh, by the way, that was a really cool item. Can I buy that item? I like what Ariel Adams wearing when he's showing that watch today. Can I buy those sunglasses? Subliminal, not in your face. I think what you're saying makes enormous amount of sense. And I agree that it's it's... It can be very, very highly effective when done appropriately. And I agree with you what you said earlier, that the future is really about content. I mean, I, I grew up uh, in a sort of internet era where this, this statement of content is king was, was a, a dogmatic mantra, and it proved to be very, very true e even today. Yet these days, very few people are actually investing in content. There's this assumption that people will make content for nothing and make it for cheap. And yes, while there's sort of a gold rush era, that happens. But eventually professionalism falls in. The question is this, given the fact that there, there needs to be an ongoing amount of content creation and, and understanding that it needs to be professionals that make it, that need to be paid, 
who ultimately should be paying for the content directly um, or indirectly, but you know, where should it be funded from? In our model, um, I'm going to pick on somebody that's on our site, uh, Daniel Green, who's a internationally known chef. Uh, Daniel Green literally has shot the content. And this is, uh, by the way, technology has also changed this dramatically. Um, right. The videos of Daniel Green are shot with an iPhone on a DJI Steadicam. So right. a DJI Steadicam is like $129, the iPhone you own, and the quality is off the chart. And he's doing cooking videos with a set of pans that you can buy. It's that, and, and he gets paid based on the, the the product sales. He gets a percentage of those product sales. That's the model we use. Uh, might we pay people in the future? Maybe we might, and I'm not being cute with you on the phone. Somebody like you that has a huge base, you know, might command, you know, and it's a choice somebody like you would have to make. Do, do I want upfront money or would I rather have unlimited back end? But the production in our model typically falls on the person, the influencer, because in my vision of the future, people, the consumer, don't want something overproduced. They want something more authentic, uh, done in their kitchen, done in their living room. I think if any, if you watch The Voice last year, I think The Voice with the with the performances done on their on their front porch or in their living room with their family in front of them, I thought it was much more organic and much more enjoyable than in the uh, studio. Okay, so here's, uh, again, a further refinement to the question. Um, I actually agree with you that if people are incentivized by performance, that's not necessarily a bad thing. But discovery of content, very, very important. Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Google, these are some of the primary ways people discover content. Now, when people go onto a platform to put content uh, they want to make sure that if they're work if they're working for performance, that the platform helps deliver performance. The answer would be yes. Yeah. How how do you do that? How does a a platform like your network deliver to the content creators enough eyeballs that if their content is at least decent, they maybe they won't make amazing money, but they'll be like, okay, I'm doing something. Because right now, here's what you have in the in the world of content creation: you have have and have nots. You have lots of people that are making content in the hopes that they will make some money, not understanding how, um, how online advertising works and how it's very small amounts of money and you have to have huge eyeballs. You know, there's lots of people really not making a lot of money, even though they're putting a lot of effort. And then you have a relatively small number of people that enjoy an outsized amount of the online viewership attention, like some of these influencers on YouTube that get you know, millions of views and their content isn't that great. Obviously, YouTube is delivering... <clears throat> a large number of people to them when they could be funneling that other places. So what does the future look like in the platforms being able to better serve the, the viewership needs to get the performance that the content creators need? The platforms obviously have an obligation to bring eyeballs to the site. They have, and they can do that via, you know, SEO, digital ads, et cetera. And also in a platform like ours, that each influencer it's kind of like Ghostbusters with the three rays. I mean, you know, somebody may come in uh, because of uh, Bo Riles in his travel video, and while they're there, they might see something on watches from Ariel Adam, and then they go over and they cross-pollinate each other. So that works that way, too. So if you have a platform that has a lot of traffic, I mean, we have a wrestling show that, I mean, every time they post a new interview, 
I mean, there's a couple thousand views, like literally that day. I mean, I, not that I'm a fan of wrestling, but obviously, I mean, I learned from my father years ago. It's not what I like or don't like. It's what the consumer does. And people love, there's a amazing fan base for wrestling. So people come in to watch that and then they hunt around the site. We have um, really, really good traffic and really good stickiness on our site. And I think, again, the future is there's an obligation of the platform to bring the eyeballs there. I could make an argument that, I mean, when's the last time you ever saw an ad for a TV shopping channel? Almost never. Um, right. You know, but it's it's obviously doing really well because of who's there. And, and you made a comment before about, you know, the the, the person that's there. I, there's, a, there's a story, and I was there at the time. My father was still chairman of the board. Um, that uh, Jessica Simpson came on with a sugar-based body lotion. I'm not making this up. And that the basically the premise was it could be <laughs> licked, it could be licked off by your significant other. There they bought right, they bought enough for what was a two-hour show. Now you could say, based on the stereotype that you mentioned previously, that Jessica Simpson did not fit the profile of QVC. Well, I will no, tell you. No, I think you, she would do very well. That sounds like it would have sold out immediately. Well, ironically, it sold out. The two hours sold out in 20 minutes. And my point of that is the consumer found her on QVC and liked what she was selling. So that reinforces what you're about in that, you know, the right influencer or the right product will bring the eyeballs themselves. You add on top of that a little bit more icing and you do some SEO, you do a release, you do whatever else you want to do. There's the magic happening. But, you know, if you and I were going to start a TV shopping channel today, the one thing we wouldn't do is we probably would not be on TV if you thought about it, right? Um, we don't, yeah, I mean, we would be yeah. on a different platform, but it would still right. be the same concept of us speaking with video to an audience that wants to be entertained and informed kind of at the same time. Right. And who has be, a disposable income. And, and we're, Right, but it would be based on content, number one. Number two is... QVC, HSN, Gem Shopping, JTV, you name them, Shop LC. I mean, there's, a, there's about a half a dozen or more in this country. They each individually spend about $100 million a year on distribution. That's insane. Interesting. Interesting. It's ins- absolutely insane when you think about what you can do for a quarter of that money in you know, Facebook, YouTube, et cetera, buying SEO. And I think there's a pivot happening, certainly with QVC, from everything I've read. Um, but the problem is that we wouldn't do it that way now. You and I are too smart, and we could start fresh, and we could do a totally different way, which is what we're doing with your network. Um, go ahead. Well, let me, say, let me say one final thing about this, and then I want to go uh, talking back about sort of the, the, the glory days of selling watches on TV. But there's sort of this conundrum with content creators today. And so I'm really happy you said that the platform has an obligation to bring eyeballs because that's a really key thing. Now, here's here's the situation we have right now. Content creators have to do two things at the exact same time, actually more than two, but these for purpose of this argument, two main things. One is make the content. Two is get an audience for the content. Now, even in the days of TV, people only had to do one or the other. People making a show just put on the network and the network got eyeballs. It is an unprecedented thing where the People who are making content in any professional sense at the exact same time have to create and nurture an audience for it. On top of that, they have to take all the risk across the board. So what ends up happening? The things that do well 
are the things that on a low budget get a lot of eyeballs. And the only things that do that are shocking things, controversial things, scary things, angry things, things that are probably not very healthy and a lot more like junk food. And so what we have today in the online content economy is an overwhelming majority of content, which is just a gimmick to get attention without really sustaining uh, the, the brain of, of, the, of the viewer, of the user. And that's because the economics around everything are completely screwed up. And so, you know, I think it starts with the YouTubes um, of the world and the Googles and the Facebooks and all that, where they have to fundamentally change their models. Because if they rely on people doing, you know, basically slavery content, um, that's not going to be sustainable. And that's going to keep the, the bar on what is media very, very low. I 100% agree with you. Um, there's going to have to be a shakeup. And I, we, we're engaging with a company um, to get us influencers, you know, for specific categories. And he, he, this person will be negotiating the contract. But one of the things I, I pointed out, and if you think about this, that if you look at like the top five viral videos of the last couple of years, none of them came from the traditional influencer. It was the guy with the, uh, the cranberry juice on the uh, skateboard, right? I mean, you know, singing Fleetwood Mac. I mean, that's the kind of stuff. And it's the stuff out of left field that becomes amazing. And, and it was for a nobody. And, and I, 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 there's, there's a model for encouraging and rewarding people like you to do things that are edgy, uh, and engaging and get people to watch. And that's, I don't, where that line is. How you do it, and, and are you shocking or are you controversial? I don't want you, I don't want you to. I'm not that I'm managing you. I don't want you to be shocking or controversial. But you know something that could be really cool. Uh, you know, talking about a watch while you're diving with sharks on Shark Week or something. You know, something wild. Uh, stuff like that, I think, is what people want to see. You know, it's funny because I have this experience where I'll be swimming or something like that and find myself wanting to have a conversation with someone about the watch I'm wearing. And like, oh, darn, there's no one to, 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 chat, uh, to chat with about this right now. So you're right. If I was able to be filmed, I'd have so many more opportunities to be active. I love the idea of going into cities with watches and talking about the experience, you know, doing sports and other activities, you know, um, going to NASA while wearing a Speedmaster and imagining what somebody, you know, decades ago wearing the same watch would have felt being in that place under slightly different circumstances. You know, these are amazing experiences. We're experience hungry generation right now. You know, we, we say there's this transition from buying things to experiences. Well, in the watch specter, you know, that is the ability to, to have that, um, that moment where you're out there in the world having that experience. And then it becomes permanent, becomes memorialized in the watch. And then when you look at the watch, you think of that positive experience you had. And that is how watches, to me, can be a transportation of these memories and have a lot of personal value. And it's best when it's your memory, right? It's better than, than buying someone else's memory. So getting the watch you like and assigning your own memory to it, that's a wonderful experience, I think, co motivates collectors like you and me to keep doing this. I 100% agree. And I think a... Uh a great link to put on this podcast, if you do that, is the okay. backstory of the Omega Moon Watch and how it became the watch. I mean, you probably know there's a great article that the New York Times did. And it's a phenomenal story. And it's a little bit of luck and a little bit of timing 
when they wanted they watch for the astronauts to wear on the Apollo mission and how they got from, you know, they put a request out to 10 watches and like only three responded or something. I mean, it's like how dumb. And there's stories like that all the time. There's a, yeah. a, a great documentary series on the History Channel. It's kind of like, you know, the, the, the great snack food of America and all this kind of stuff. And there was an opportunity with um, E.T., the movie, that Steven Spielberg reached out to M&Ms and said, we're going to use this thing. We want to, like, entice E.T. to come to the little girl, and we want to give him an M&M. <laughs> an M&M and M&M, actually, when they told him the print, M&M went, no, no, that's too scary. And they passed. And it went to Reese's Pieces. I mean, there's <laughs> stories like that that are documented that like you scratch your head and you go, oh my God. And by the way, at that moment in time, Reese's kind of like almost eclipsed M&M's. It later adjusted, but that could have been devastating for M&M's. And there are, that, that, that actually reinforced the whole content concept. The content that is shoppable. It was product placement in an iconic movie that really put Reese's pieces on the map. And stories like you swimming, you diving, wearing a watch, you doing a video or somebody filming you, that's really cool content, but it's not, but your video is not about the watch. It's about your experience diving with sharks or, or hunting for octopuses or whatever it is. And somebody will just find themselves go, gee, I wonder, he's a watch guy. I wonder what watch he's wearing when he's diving and they'll find it by themselves. And that's yeah, because the people, People want more than just product. People want cool watches to then go have good experiences with. Nobody just wants a watch to, to wear while sitting at home. You look at that watch, you become a different person for a moment, you're wearing the dive watch, you think to yourself, I need to go do something like diving. You wear the pilot's watch, you say, I want to go have that experience of flying. The watch is a portal to an emotion and a memory of something you're doing Outside of what you're doing right there, that's really sort of the value there. Final, final question for you, Marv. Sure. What can the watch industry of today, especially the luxury watch industry, learn from some of the things that you saw worked really well in televised sales, online sales, influencer sales? Because you and I, I think we both appreciate these brands, but we recognize that compared to like an Invicta, a lot of the really good brands are very poor storytellers. What are some things that they could be doing differently? You know, what are some specific suggestions you might have for them? Well, I would look to Omega, coincidentally. That I mean, it's not by coincidence that they not only have the moon watch on the Apollo mission, but they have the James Bond watch. I mean, somebody is really smart over there in the marketing department and, and, in terms of two iconic situations. I mean, James Bond is the longest running series, I think, in the history of movies. And the Apollo mission to be tied to that, it's to make your your product, in this case a watch, tied to something of meaning. Breitling in aviation, Breitling sponsoring the um, what's the uh, the airplane races? I can't think of the name of that right now. But the, you know the, Reno, the, the Reno one, the Reno yes. races. Yeah, and I mean th that's iconic. You're branding yourself with that Red Bull doing. I mean. I remember when I lived, lived in Minnesota, the crashed ice races, which I thought was the craziest thing I ever saw. <laughs> but, but, you know, it's like, but you remember Red Bull because of that event. And, you know, it's, that's experiential. You, so be part of culture. You're basically saying if you want to be successful, be part of culture. 
Yes, make yourself that you not only think of the brand, but you think of what the brand does. I think that's very, very important and get people to really appreciate what goes into your brand. And I think a lot of these uh, iconic brands do that. I'm, I'm a camera buff also. Leica has a camera that, that they have a video about the camera and it's literally a video for like four hours. So I'm not making this up of somebody polishing the aluminum case on the camera. And they, and that, and it starts out with a voiceover. It says, you're going to find this very boring, but this is the amount of time we take to polish precisely <laughs> every finish on this whole you, case. You know what, you know what that is? That's a British person using, um, basically making an ad for a German company because the Germans would never think to get excited about the fact that they polish a case like that or polish a component. They do it because they need to do it. And the British would recognize you guys should make light of that. Right. No. And it's, and it, but that's my point that it makes you remember what goes into, you know, that brand. I mean, Leica still to this day is known for phenomenal optics. So, I mean, you know, brands work really hard to get that. And once you get it, you don't ever want to lose it. And that is the one thing I would say to anybody, figure out what your brand is. I have a saying from when I started my career in politics, it's what makes you different, unique, and better than the competition. And you better know that and you better have it as a tattoo on your body somewhere because you got to, you have to stay true to that. And most people don't know that if you ask them that question. You know, if you walk into a store, I was a consultant for a bank in Philadelphia. And before I met with the president, I went downstairs to the had a branch downstairs. And I said, I just moved into the area, made up a story. And I have $100,000 I'd like to deposit in your bank. But you, can you tell me why I should put it with your bank versus any other bank in the city? And the teller, looked at, me, the teller looked at me like a deer in headlamps. I had no idea how to answer the question. <laughs> and I told him the story. As soon as I walked into the prison, I told him the story. And before I even gave him my pitch, he goes, you're higher. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, but that's, it's that simple sometimes and people overthink it. Yeah, we do. Well, everyone's looking to, to fit into some pro process. I mean, just the art of getting a job is, is a complicated endeavor these, these days. But you know what? We'll have to have you on again uh, on another episode because it sounds like we have a lot more to talk about. Everyone, my guest today has been uh, Marvin Siegel from Your Network. Uh, Marv, thanks so much for joining us. And is there anywhere else that you can recommend people go to check out your stuff? It's just you go to our, our website is uh, www.thynetworks.com and you can enjoy all the content. And, uh, you know, I look forward to uh, doing this again with you. Uh, you and I have a great bonding. Thank you. Oh, oh, thanks so much, Marv. Talk to you later. Bye. Okay, bye-bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at blog2watch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit blog2watch.com. Thank you for listening to the Believe Podcast Network. Do you believe?